If you would grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 13 this morning. Mark chapter 13. And I have the, um, I don't know what the word is, inevitable, unevitable, when you envy, say it again. Thank you, brother, I needed that. I have that task this morning of preaching a chapter out of the book of Mark, and uh, it is not an easy chapter, and uh, we're going to jump right into uh, the message this morning because I want to uh, address uh, some of the things that we see in our text, and I want to be very clear that my desire is uh, to address this text probably in a way that will make some of you disappointed. Some of you will, uh, and no doubt, uh, walk away and say, I wish you would have addressed this. I wish you would have addressed that. And, uh, and we do have opportunities to do that. But to be able to do that in a, an effective way would take me weeks on end. And I was told that I should plug my theology class. And if you've ever been a part of my theology class, you know that we go nice and slow. And uh, we've been studying the subject of the Trinity now since uh, the beginning of September, and uh, we're trying to get done before the Equipping You is done, and we'll be addressing some of these topics and subjects uh, in uh, the next couple of years in that class, and so there's an opportunity for you to be a part of it. But turn to Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13 this morning, and uh, we find ourselves, as we come to the 13th chapter in this series that we've entitled, Man at Work, Jesus is in his final week of ministry. Uh, Many believe that this is taking place on the Wednesday, uh, of course, of Easter, uh, the day before he will, of course, uh, take his uh, disciples to the upper room and lead them in what uh, would then forever be called the Lord's Supper, the Passover celebration And Jesus on the Mount of Olives gives what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's recorded in Luke uh, as it is in Mark, which we'll be studying. But the most comprehensive part of the passage uh, is seen in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And I would leave it to you uh, to look at some of the greater nuances of Matthew 24 and 25 on your own. Now, most scholars say that the passage that we're dealing with this morning is the most perplexing passages of all of Scripture. And uh, this is where I was hoping that maybe Pastor Keith or Pastor Scott would lead our time in preaching this morning, but they said, you know what, no, you go ahead and take it, and uh, we'll laugh all along the way. But we have a perplexing passage before us, and to understand this text, to be able to know what this text is going to be talking about, we need to be mindful that we're listening in many ways to a discourse, a conversation, but we need to recognize that the Olivet Discourse, especially in the Gospel of Mark, is not a word-for-word transcription of what Jesus' words are. They are a culmination and a, um, a uh, recap of some of the themes and issues that Jesus talked about. There's no doubt that the Olivet Discourse had more to it than what this has in it, but this has been given to us so that we may know we have life and in life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The second thing that we've got to understand is that in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 13, as we deal with the subject of end times, what Mark wants to accomplish is not getting us to understand times and dates, but to focus in on our behavior admits difficult circumstances that may come as we live in these last days. Now, as a parent, I taught my children the importance of being calm and confident in times of trouble and strife. And as a father of young, rambunctious kids, I recognized that they would inevitably find themselves in times of trouble. And so I like to give them every once in a while, without them even knowing, real-life situations. And I hope that none of the cameras on Walmart have caught any of these. But I begin to live out some different troubling situations in their life, trying to help them to think on their feet. What happens, Noah, Luke, and Josh, when you're lost in a public place? What are you going to do if someone is bullying you? What are you going to do if there's a case of fire or God forbid a kidnapper ties to grab you. What are you going to do if someone tries to offer you something that you shouldn't have? And I can go on and on. And the desire that I have in bringing these real-life situations together is to prepare them ahead of time. Because in that moment, it's going to be so important that they're thinking and that they're confident and calm amidst the chaos around them. 
It is in Jesus, one of Jesus' farewell conversations with the disciples, in fact, four of them, that he begins to speak about what life would be like without Christ being there. And what Jesus shares in Mark 13 is, in essence, how to live when certain scenarios and situations come. And he says they will, because he wants his followers not to be filled with fear and dismay, but he wants them to settle down, he wants them to get to work, and he wants them to take heart because Jesus says, in the end, I win. The same words for the disciples are true for us today. We live in a world of chaos. We live in a world where it seems that the world could come undone at any time. And the question is, how will we respond? Will we live in that chaotic life, nervous, fearful, filled with uh, fear and dismay? Or will we do something different? Will we live out what Christ has told us to do? Sadly, far too often, Christians find themselves dwelling on the exact opposite. Just like the disciples, instead of living the way we need to in the last days, we are so worried about times and dates. When is this going to happen, Jesus? When is that going to happen? That we forget that the plans of God are more important than times and dates that we want to set for Christ. And so with the moments that I have left, I want to explore this passage. And I'm not going to be able to do justice to it, 37 verses in about that time. So about a minute a, a, a verse. But I want to explore it not from a theoretical standpoint, but a pastoral one. And I want us to see that the principles of living in the end times, in the last days, is not about fine points of certain events, but about holiness and confidence amidst the greatest times of chaos that this world has ever seen. And I want us to be able to leave this place completely and utterly certain that God has and is and always will be in control and that he is working everything out according to his divine purpose and plan. So under the heading of confidence amidst chaos, living for Christ in these last days, let's explore three particular areas. Number one, let's address the different perspectives of Christians. When we explore the subject of end times, what is called in theological terms eschatology, the study of last things, what Jesus is going to share is what is going to happen in the future. Some of them are in the near future, others of them still are yet to be fulfilled. And we are going to see that this is something, this study of eschatology is something that is, has varied perspectives and views. And we see it within two arenas. Number one, we see it in our doctrine. We see it in our doctrine. There is probably no doctrine that is debated more and has more nuances than that of the study of last things, the study of the future. And we find ourselves really struggling with that. No doubt in the group this size, we will have people that will differ on a lot of the fine points of these things. Now, there are some who believe that this prophecy, what we're about to read, has a simply a historic a place in history, meaning that all that Jesus is going to articulate has already taken place, and they view it from a historical standpoint. Still others would view it uh, maybe from a spiritual standpoint, that some of these phrases and uh, words are pictures and metaphors helping to establish spiritual truths that Jesus is trying to address with his disciples. Still others, and I would say the tradition of this church has been that uh, there are future implications to what Jesus is sharing. While many of the prophetic prophecies that are in this passage have taken place, there are still some that have an ongoing and future fulfillment in history. And so we can have historic, we can have spiritual, we can have a futuristic view. But the variety of positions is immense. You don't need to write all this down, but when it comes to the time of the tribulation, you can be a pre-trib, a mid-trib, a post-trib, or a pre-wrath guy. 
You can be preterist. I know many of you don't even understand what many of these words mean, but they're hotly debated. When it comes to the millennial kingdom, the thousand year of Christ, you can find yourself as a dispensational premillennialist, a historic premillennialist. You can find yourself being a postmillennialist or an amillennialist. You can take a covenant view of Scripture or a dispensational one. And we could go on and on with all of the nuances. But let me share it in a clearer way. Some of you are saying, oh, man, Tim, you don't talk this way. Well, let me help you. I have been indebted to some great contemporary preachers of our day. Men like Alistair Begg, Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, John Piper, James Montgomery Boyce, and R.C. Sproul. And can I tell you, none of those men agree fully on the subject matter that we're going to talk about. And all of them are men after God who love the Lord and desire to see the gospel proclaimed to all the world. And so with that, we got to be very careful. We have to understand that there is great liberty in the study of end times. Anytime we come to a passage like this, we need not be dogmatic, but we need to understand that it is not fully revealed to us as to how all that is going to take place. And so when we wrote our doctrinal statement a couple of years ago, when we revised our constitution, this is what the elders came up with, with our position for end times. Listen as I share. At a time known only to God, Jesus Christ will descend from heaven and all believers, both those who have died in Christ and those who are still alive with him, will meet him, I'm sorry, will meet him in the air. Now listen to what we have written afterwards. This hope, of the coming of Jesus Christ produces in us a sense of constant expectancy, meaning it could happen at any time. It motivates us to godly living and sacrificial service and energetic mission. The desire that we should have as we study this isn't to try to figure out every jot and tittle, but to understand that this is going to lead us to being better Christians. How ought we live, Peter tells his people in 1 Peter, what kind of lives should we live in end times? And he says, upright and holy ones. He doesn't say figure out exactly when it's going to happen. He says, just be ready, and when Christ comes, that he will find you and the church of the living God faithful. Now, the second area that we see this varied perspective is in our demeanor, in our demeanor. As believers, and I want you to understand, as believers, we fall into a variety of perspectives. Not simply in our doctrine, that can lead us in a certain direction, but we have to understand that it also can lead us into how we respond as we study a passage like this. And I can assure you that we all have no doubt fallen prey to any one of these that I'm going to address and to do it, to help us understand it, because sometimes it's better to look at somebody when we do this. I'm going to share with you uh, something that I do every once in a while, and that is introduce some of my friends to you. And uh, we have fun with this, and I hope this will help us as a teaching tool to do it. And I want to introduce to you Who Cares Wilma. Who Cares Wilma. Now, Wilma is one uh, who gives little thought to end times scripture. She's so enthralled with the things of this world that she can't imagine that prophecy actually would take place. She can't imagine that the words that she reads on a page would actually come to fruition. Wilma is content just to live her life and to continue to view Jesus as a historical character, not one who has a future plan and purpose that he is going to see fulfilled. She's not even thinking about the coming of the Lord. She loves Jesus, but she's not thinking that at all. Then there's disbelieving Darla. Darla has been a Christian for a long time, and she has grown tired and weary. She finds her struggles in the world and the garbage that the world brings into her life weighing heavily on her, and quite frankly, she can't take it for much longer. And year after year, Darla has prayed, Lord Jesus, come back. Lord Jesus, take us away from this place so we can worship and adore you, so we can no longer fight with sin. And she prays it, and as she prays it, it seems that the prayer goes unanswered. And as a result, she finds herself thinking that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is far off than ever before. And as a result, she starts to lose hope and starts thinking that this end time stuff will never happen. 
Then there's scared Scarlet. Scarlet is one who loves the Lord deeply, but she's read the books, and she's seen the movies, and she's freaked out. If you haven't been a Christian for that long and you haven't seen movies like Thief in the Night, I watched Thief in the Night at church. It was the only movie we could watch in our church. And quite frankly, as a nine-year-old kid, I was freaked out. There's some scary stuff in there, and I thought I was the Antichrist for a while. <laughs> some of you just put some pieces together, and you're like... And Scarlet finds herself like many as we look to the world... And we see the ongoing struggles and the growing persecution in the world. And she finds herself looking at the world with fear and trepidation. So she doesn't look at it as something that will create hope. She sees it as something that will produce all kinds of dismay in her life. Then I have a friend. His name is Newspaper Ned. Ned is one who looks at Bible prophecy as the latest installment of National Treasure a biblical game of clue, a prophetic game of understanding present-day events to find out how the pieces are all going to come together, trying to put together a timeline how everything will unfold. His focus, of course, is finding out who the Antichrist is and how ironic it is always a person of the other political party. He finds himself looking more like a cover of a tabloid magazine than he does a student of God's word. That's Newspaper Ned. Then there's Political Polly. They're friends, Newspaper Ned and Political Polly. Polly learned her ways from Ned, and she goes one step further. She begins to use end times events and prophecy to determine who she might support in modern day events. Whether it comes to the Middle East, she wants to know who's on God's side and who's not on God's side. And she's willing to give a country all kinds of passes and give others only punishment. She begins to look at people who are in the wrong countries as political and prophetic pawns instead of people who are loved and whom God cares for deeply. Now let me stop here for a moment. I don't want to take a lot of time in here, but I hope you're starting to see some of the implications of some of my friends. There's always a little bit of each of these people in our own lives. I can't tell you how many times I have uh, allowed the allure of eschatology to send me on a million Google searches. But when it comes to the true response and the true involvement with biblical prophecy, there is only simply one response we can follow, and that is my friend, Confident Carl. Confident Carl. Carl is one who knows as much as any of the other guys do about Scripture, but he recognizes while there is an allure to end times pursuits that it must always yield itself back to an ongoing pursuit of holiness. This comes from a recognition that Carl has that God is doing his job and that we need to be doing our job. And that God says that our job is to glorify God, to love one another, and to seek and to save that which is lost which is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Carl knows that God is completing his work, and he looks forward to completing the work that Carl has in his life. It is here that Carl becomes a living example of a couple quotes that I want to share by some prophetic big names. David Jeremiah says this, Brothers and sisters, rather than spending all your time reading End Times magazines and books, trying to figure out what the future might hold, maybe you should spend at least as much time getting to know Jesus himself. Then when the future becomes the present, you will enjoy a wondrously close relationship with Almighty God, and you can be walking with the Lord Jesus Christ in strength no matter what the future holds." James Edward, a Presbyterian Bible scholar, says the following. The premium of discipleship is not based on predicting the future. The premium of discipleship is not based on predicting the future, but our faithfulness in the present, especially in times of trials, suffering, and great adversity. What great words from those two men as to how to live the Christian life admits last days. 
And so once we've understood this and understand kind of where we're coming from and the heart that I have in this message, let's get to point number two. And that is the prophecy that Jesus shares. You say, Tim, we haven't gotten to the text. Well, let's get to the text. It says in verse one, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus replied, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now the text tells us in this last week, Jesus will leave the temple for the very last time. This is the last time he's going to be in the temple. In fact, the only other time we see the temple in Mark's gospel is in the tearing of the veil that separates uh, the common temple courts to the holy of holies. But this is it. Jesus has done in his time uh, serving and uh, teaching in the temples. And as they're leaving, one of the disciples starts looking at the geography, starts looking at the architecture of Herod's temple, and he's blown away. And we can understand that. We've gone to major cities and seen incredible buildings, and wow, it's amazing. How in the world did they ever build such a structure? And it's from what seemingly is a benign statement about the architecture of Herod's temple that a discourse breaks out by Jesus that would confound even the smartest of men. Now, Herod's temple, the reason why that disciple speaks of it, was one of the great marvels in ancient history. It was a building of great size and great significance. It would be viewed as a marvel in the ancient history of the world, and the disciples would notice the size of the stones, and rightly so, because they were massive. Archaeologists tell us that Herod's temple was built with stones that were 12 feet tall, 18 feet wide, and 42 feet long. They were done with such precision that no mortar was needed to build one stone upon the other. These behemoth stones weighed hundreds of tons. And a study at New York University in their, uh, in their architect division or degree program spends time trying to understand how the ancient Jewish people built such a structure without any kind of use of hydraulics or power equipment. This is a marvel. And it's here that Jesus shares a prophetic word. And he says quite simply in Tim Bedall's translation, it's all coming down. It's all coming down. I wonder what the disciples must have been thinking at that point. This is the creme de la creme of Jewish architecture. This is our, our piece of significance in the world. When we want to bring somebody from the foreign lands to our place and want to show them something of significance, we bring them to Herod's temple. This is who we are. It's a masterpiece. And Jesus says, my brothers, it's going to come down. As we look at that, we see that Jesus articulates some things. And in this prophecy, and it's difficult, and I want us to work through this as quickly yet as sensibly as possible, that we see, first of all, in this prophetic word, we see past events of the first century. After their trip, Jesus takes the disciples to the Mount of Olives. And it says from there, on the Mount of Olives, you can see all of Jerusalem, including the temple, which, of course, was the largest of all of the buildings and structures in Israel. And four of the disciples, the two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter, James and John, quietly walk over to Jesus and they have a question. Notice verse three. As Jesus was on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so it's sitting there, they can see it, Peter, James and John and Andrew ask him privately, tell us when these things will happen. What things? What he's just articulated, that not one stone will be left on another, and that everyone will be thrown down. They say, tell us when this is going to happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, what we need to understand is they want to know the times and dates. Tell us, how is all this going to work out, and how true is that of us as believers? We love to hear another story and another formula as to how we might know that Jesus is coming. We've seen it. Nobody can forget that uh, in 1988, there was a book that there were 88 reasons why Jesus was going to come back in 1988. You got it. 
And then who can forget, just in this past year, uh, Harold Camping and all of his formulas and all of his math problems, first saying it would happen in May, and then in October, and finally, thanks be to God, the guy repented and said, man, I don't know what I was thinking, that when it says that no man knows the hour of the day, that that's what it means. Praise God. But as we look at this passage, we see some things that we need to understand. And what Jesus is about to articulate, what he shares here is something that I believe and what I can view from most all commentators that they agree on this, that the events of verses 1 and 2, the temple being destroyed, finds its fulfillment in A.D. 70, in the first century, 30 years after Jesus had walked on the earth, during the time and the lives of the disciples. It is told by the great historian Josephus, who was an unbeliever, just a, if you will, uh, ancient historian, that in A.D. 66, the Jews revolt over what they see as a religious travesty. The Romans begin to start uh, getting themselves involved in some of the Jewish worship and doing so in a way that would dishonor God. And as a result of that, they start getting angry. And they begin to start a revolt. And it would go on for five years. Rome would see a stalemate. And here's the problem. Rome was by far the strongest of all nations in the ancient world. And it's fighting this minuscule country of Israel. Finally being just tired of dealing with this stalemate, Rome would send one of their great generals, the great general Titus. And in AD 68, he would begin to decimate the Palestinian countryside, going from village to village. Historians tell us that there was a rate of 500 crucifixions a day showing people that if you fight Rome, you will be dealt with severely. It is then that in A.D. 70, in the spring of A.D. 70, that Titus would reach Jerusalem. And he writes back to the the ruler of Rome, who he was related to, and he says, I will utterly decimate it for the glory of Rome. And that's exactly what he does. According to Josephus, uh, sometime in the early part of AD 70, a fire would start as a result of war that was taking place in Jerusalem. And it would begin to decimate most of Jerusalem, including starting a fire within the temple. The fire would burn for so long and would be so hot that it would melt all of the precious metals in the temple, and it would be so uh, such a melting process that it would literally melt itself into the foundation, into the very cracks of the foundation of the temple. And so Titus, after he besieges the city of Jerusalem, tells his troops to start knocking down the temple brick by brick. Why would he do that? To get the loot out of the foundation of the temple. What would he use that money for? Historians tell us that that would be the bankroll that would be used to build the great Colosseum. During that time that Jesus speaks of, there would be 1.1 million Jews killed. Thousands would be crucified, and 100,000 of the strongest men would be sent to Rome to now build the Colosseum that they have money now to fund. And it is here that Jesus so plainly and so perfectly in his prophecy says, this temple that you put such a great uh, worth to is going to fall, and it's going to fall in a way that the world has never seen. Now he goes on in verses 3 through 8, and this is where it starts to get a little tough. As Jesus was sitting on the Mountain of Olives, he's now talked with uh, them, and he's told them what's going to happen. He says to them, watch out in verse 5. That no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus says something that we need to understand. How is all this going to happen? Instead of giving the disciples signs, he gives them a bunch of non-signs, if you understand what I mean by that. He says, here are a bunch of things that are going to happen, and they're not the signs. And he uses the illustration of a pregnancy. And the pregnancy, of course, we know that the, the pinnacle of the pregnancy is the birth. It is when the baby makes his great arrival. 
And yet, there's a lot of pains and there's a lot of situations that a pregnant woman goes through for those nine months prior to the labor and the delivery that will remind her that she's pregnant, that she can't forget. There's the kick in the side and, and the food that you used to love that you can't eat. And almost at the beginning of the pregnancy, there is a reality check that says you're pregnant. And right when you think you're not pregnant, I'm going to remind you either through your swollen ankles or through your inability to find a comfortable place to stay and sleep. And there's a reminder over and over again. Jesus says these aren't the sign of delivery, but they're the sign to remind you that the world, if you will, is pregnant, waiting for the birth, the second coming, if you will, of Jesus Christ. And so notice a couple of them. He says one of the signs is false messiahs. Many are going to come into the world and speak and say they are Christ. This isn't just true in the first century, but it's true throughout human history that we have had hundreds, if not thousands of people who have said that they are Christ. Just go to wikipedia.com and type in people who claim to be Jesus and you'll be blown away. The list is huge. Now, of course, in our generation, we can remember people like Jim Jones. We can remember David Koresh, guys that got up, and they were crazies. But we need to understand, as you read some of these articles of some of these men, that they took thousands, and they were able to lead them. You say, well, how in the world would someone believe that? Because Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, that in the last days, people will accumulate teachers who will take care of and please them by teaching them what their itching ears want to hear. People are going to give up sound doctrine and just listen to things. And I will tell you, our world is filled with individuals who say that they are Christ. Listen to me instead of preaching the historic and biblical Jesus that the church should be proclaiming. Now notice the next thing he says, there will be wars and rumors of war. Just as in the first century, as in the last 20 centuries, peace would not reign during the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. It would be a time of great war. And that is true within history. We have fought thousands of wars as human beings. We've seen the death of hundreds of millions of people by the sword. This earth is something that is not a time of peace amongst brothers, but it's a time on this earth where we endure all kinds of hardships. This last century, we have seen the more deaths and more war than any other time in human history. It's not getting better. It seemingly is getting worse. But notice the earth doesn't help us out at all either. Because he says that there will be earthquakes and famines. And so if we don't kill each other, the climate and the struggles that the world has as it groans for its own redemption will bring great chaos and trouble. Of course, we've seen the death of millions again because of earthquakes. And who can forget the 300-some thousand that were killed by a tsunami <clears throat> in Southeast Asia. It's a time of chaos. And what Jesus is sharing is, is it's not going to be easy. And he raises it to a new level and he addresses in verses 9 through 13 the personal experiences of us as Christ's followers notice what he says he says in the text you must be on your guard you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the gospel must be preached to all nations Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you will say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved." So Jesus now looks at his disciples and says, okay, not only is the world that you live in going to be shaken and things are really going to start to rock and roll and, and really come to a place that we've never seen before, but now you're going to endure some of these things as well. Persecution is going to come. Persecution for the Christian is going to be the name of the game. And that has been seen throughout history. According to most scholars, an estimated 43 million Christians have been killed for their faith since the time of Jesus. It is estimated in our world today that this year alone 150,000 Christians worldwide will die 
as a result of spiritual persecution. Jesus is saying, hey, this is not going to be fun for the believer. Living in these last days will bring forth persecution. That's hard for us to believe in our cozy suburban life, but I'll tell you, persecution is coming. I will tell you today, God is my witness. One of the first things I do every morning is on my phone, just read a group of headlines, and there was a study done. And a study, I was sharing this with Amanda, the study said that uh, they had done a, a study on people who had said that they had been born again. And the people they learned in this study who had been born again to those who had no religious involvement, the people that were born again had a smaller part of the brain than the people that were not born again, okay? And so I'm sitting there going, you know what? That, that's persecution. What might they do with this? Well, they'll find out that if you say you're born again, you're crazy. And they said, when, when you see this part of the brain that's smaller than it should be, it leads to Alzheimer's, um, depression, and it leads to all kinds of mental instability. Is that not persecution in our day? Now, we don't, we don't think about that because we think we're cozy in our lives and everything's going great. But I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, the world has got us in its crosshairs. We need to be ready for it. Peter and John, Andrew and James would understand this. They would stand before councils and they would proclaim Christ. Paul would stand before numerous settings of those in authority, Agrippa and Felix. And tradition would tell us that each of the apostles would suffer great pain and sorrow for the cause of Jesus Christ. The time between the Christ's two comings is one of great difficulty for Christians. But the great truth is, is that Jesus said that the whole world will hear the gospel. What Jesus is saying is they may knock us down. They may try to make our lives miserable. But at the end of the day, Christ's gospel will be proclaimed. And we see that now more than ever becoming true. In verse, 14, in verse 14, we see something now come on the horizon, what I call the personification of evil. In verse 14, he says, Now when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does, not belong, let the reader understand, he says parenthetically, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Let's stop here for a moment, because it seems now that Jesus is talking future, and now he's also talking historically, and how do we deal with that, and how do we address that? Well, when you address this issue of abomination that leads to desolation, that is a buzzword that maybe we're not all that familiar with, but that the Jewish people were. 168 years before Jesus Christ would come in, uh, in the flesh, an invading army would invade the city of Jerusalem. The leader's name would be Antiochus Epiphanes. And he would enter into the temple, besiege it, take all that he wanted out of it, and to show that no longer was the temple to be a place that would serve and honor Jehovah God, he would place a pig in the Holy of Holies and he would sacrifice it to a foreign god. This would all be recorded in the, the apocryphal writings of 2 Maccabees chapter 5 and 6. as history for us to be aware of this. But a second abomination would take place as we addressed in AD 70. When Titus, the Roman general, would come, enter the temple before its destruction, and dedicate the temple to, and, and the victory of Jerusalem to the god Zeus. The temple would then be used for all sorts of unspeakable things, including the temple courts being used by the Romans as a brothel, an abomination that causes desolation. But the scripture unfolds on yet a future time where the abomination that causes desolation will take place. I want you to turn for a moment to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. And move quickly because I'm running out of time. So 2 Thessalonians, get there. And we'll read it, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Sorry about that. I knew it was in there. 
Uh, let's see here. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. In the greatest feat of blasphemous history, a man will come, a world ruler will come in the days to come where he will establish himself in the temple as not being just simply a man, but being God, equal to God, and to be worshipped. And that's going to happen. And there is a time coming where Jesus says this is going to take place. And this will lead to something. It will lead to a period of great emergency. Got to quickly continue moving here. But notice verses 14 through 20 of Mark 13. The text says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. And he says, let the reader understand. What he's saying is, don't forget what Daniel writes. Daniel says, this is bad news. This man, things are really going to start to go downhill quickly. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let one, no, no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If God had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But he, for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, there is Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if it were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So here we have something that takes place. Now, there's a great picture of it in AD 70 where Titus comes in and decimates and the people of Judea are probably fleeing for their lives. But it seems from other passages of Scripture that there's an ongoing fulfillment of this that is going to happen and that the people near and in Jerusalem are going to be running for their lives. It will be a time of great distress. It is called a time of Jacob's great trouble. And this is going to take place, but here is the glorious thing. Look at verses 24 through 27. We see a promised evacuation. When it seems as if all is lost, the text goes on and says, but in those days, following that distress, in verse 24, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Men Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he'll send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So what we see here is right when things come at their worst, we see that Jesus is going to come in what we call the greatest moment of human history, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has unveiled over and over again this passage, this passage filled with chaotic times. Times that will continue to ebb and flow. Times where we have pictures in history of how bad things can get. And Jesus says there's a time coming where they will become even worse. And it's a time that will continue to increase, just like a pregnancy. They will increase in frequency, and they will increase in pain. And at a time that is unknown to us, just as in the pregnancy, the baby says it's time to be born. And that's when things really begin to happen. As that water breaks, then things begin to unravel, both for a woman giving birth and to the world in end times prophecy. And right when we think things are at their worst, right when the world is screaming and yelling, it can't take any more, Jesus is going to part the clouds and Jesus is going to come back to take us home. There's a lot of history to chew on. And as I'm saying all this and articulating all this, I know I haven't hit on a ton of stuff. But what Mark wants to accomplish is one final thing, and I want to get to this, and that is the principles we must live by. It does us no good, brothers and sisters of Village Bible Church, to live in this world of chaos and trouble and just sit idly by waiting for the Lord to come and take us home. And so there are some commands that we are given. Number one, you want to know how to live in chaotic times, 
in times between the Lord's first coming and his second coming? Number one, don't be distracted. The disciples were distracted by the greatness of the temple. And we too, it is far too easy for us as individuals to become distracted by the things of this world. Some of you are giving no thought to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are giving no thought that there will be a day where we will stand before Jesus because we feel so alive right now. And whether by death or Christ's coming, we must recognize that we cannot be distracted by the things of this world, but we have a job that is to be done. God is bringing his plan and his fulfillment, to, uh, bringing it to fulfillment, and we have a job to do. And that job, number one, is not to be enamored by the stuff of this world, to understand that one day all of it, just as the temple was, will be brought to ruin. So be careful. It doesn't mean you can't decorate your house or drive a car, but recognize that our hope is not in the things of this world. All of them will be put into a fire. But in these days... And in these times, brothers and sisters, even when it seems that the world is going off the tracks, our job is to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Number two, live defensively. You've heard of defensive driving. This is defensive living. Three times in our text, verses 9, verse 23, and verse 33, Jesus tells us to be on guard. We know the gist of what is coming. We've just been told. Jesus says we've been warned. Now we need to live in light of that truth. We need to be wary of false teachers and false doctrine. We need to understand that uh, each of these times, verse 9, 23, and 33, are connected with the idea of staying awake, of not being in some stupor, but alert and ready. Are you as a believer in a constant state of readiness? You don't want to be caught off guard. When we are caught off guard, we will not be ready for the Lord's return. And I pray that it would be today. Are you ready? Do you have your things in order? Have you done all that God has called you to do? Have you lived as he's called you to live? Later in this passage, Jesus addresses the job for us is very similar to being a doorkeeper keeping watch over the door as our master of the house leaves for a long journey. And we're to keep watch, it says in verse 35. And we don't know whether it's going to happen in the evening or at midnight, he says, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. But if he comes suddenly, let us not be found sleeping. What I say to you, he says in verse 37, I say to everyone, watch. We cannot just sit idly by and say, well, maybe today might be the day, but we must be ready, constantly watchful and prayerful for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, we need to remain dedicated. Well, we are waiting. We are busy at work. We have a job to do, not only as a church, but as people. The world needs to hear about Jesus. Souls are to be one. And the message of the gospel, it says, must spread to the four corners of the earth. And Jesus has given us the charge to be a part of it. It won't be easy. We'll be hated. We'll be persecuted. But always remember that we speak and serve with the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples did that, and they changed the world with a testimony of 12. And we have a great opportunity to do that. And that brings us to one final point, and that is don't despair don't despair. I know these are hard words for us to hear. I know we don't want to hear about persecution and suffering. I know we don't want to hear this stuff on a brisk spring morning when we're thinking about everything else. But God's word is true. And these days will come to pass. But I want you to listen to me and I want you to hear these words. Take heart. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be filled with dismay. The God who has called us, brothers and sisters, is faithful. He's faithful to see these things come to fruition, and he's faithful to allow us to endure to the end. He'll be with us in our hour of need. He will give us everything that we need, and the job that he has given us is that we are ready when he comes. 
because he's going to come, not a second too early, not a second too late, because Christ's timing is perfect. And you and I can take solace in the fact that we serve a great God and that when all is said and done, as we sang this morning, our God is going to reign and he's going to do so forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's messages like this that I wish there wasn't a second service. Because Lord, all kinds of thoughts right now go through my head. You should have said this and you should have said that. And Lord, I just pray that what has been articulated today would be fruitful. Lord, that we would recognize we could tie ourselves in knots with this passage. But the simple truth is that you want us to know is number one, you're in control. God, we praise you that you are the one who holds in your hands the great cosmos. And that you, amidst all of that, are mindful of us. You know what we need. You know what we're enduring. You know what our struggles are. And Lord, whether we live in a time of great tranquility or a time of great turmoil, you are there with us. That you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so, Lord, we look forward to the day that you will gather us up and that we will be with you in the clouds. What a day of rejoicing that will be. But, Lord, if that was the pinnacle of what you wanted to accomplish in us, the moment we were saved, you would have taken us home to be with you. And so, Lord, we recognize our place here on earth. We recognize our need to serve you, to honor you, to love you, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to our friends and family. And to those, as we've heard from John Fernelli, those on the other side of the world. So Lord, don't allow us to become lazy. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, let us speak with confidence. You are coming back, and it may be today, and if that's the case, it will be too late for our friends and our family and for those who haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Allow that fire to burn in us so that we can more effectively go and serve the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we will not fall prey to the sensationalism of things in end times, but we will see them as truths that lead us to holiness. Lord, I pray that to that end, this has been accomplished through this message. Now, Lord, send us off into this world of chaos and trouble so that we may be a bright light, a city on a hill that will lead people back to you. Lead us in fellowship now, we pray. In Christ's name we pray, amen.